So as Eric mentioned, uh, we are beginning a series in the book of Jonah. And it might arguably be one of the most well-known, if not curious and debated stories in the entire Bible. When you hear the name Jonah, many people automatically assume or, or say, oh yeah, the guy who was in the belly of a fish, right? Do you really believe that a guy lived in the belly of a fish for three days? That's a good question. But, but let me ask you this. Do you really believe that someone who was dead for three days was resurrected? Church, believing that someone existed in the belly of a fish for three days isn't the craziest thing that we believe. The, the, the thing that our faith hinges on, that rises and falls on, the thing that matters most is that Jesus got out of the tomb. And so if we believe that Jesus is resurrected, believing that Jonah existed in a fish for three days is nothing. So to answer the question, yes, we believe it is true. But here's the thing about the story of Jonah. The fish shows up in two verses. It really has little to do with the main part and heart of the story of Jonah. It shows up to swallow him and it shows up to vomit him out. And yes, we get a chapter of Jonah in the belly of the fish, but really the, the terseness and sort of the, the, the fish shows up and then disappears shows that this is something, this book is about something far more than a guy getting swallowed by a fish. So we just came off our series on our core value of mission. And, and we recognize that as disciples of Jesus, we're called to be missionaries in our world. We, we are called to carry the gospel and proclaim it and to make disciples of Jesus. And we talk about that with passion. We, we deeply believe that as a church. But here is also the reality for us. We can sometimes be so terrible at it. We can be so unfaithful to that call. I mean, it, let's, let's be honest. For, for a lot of us, and I include myself in this, we are broken missionaries. We are a hot mess when it comes to being missionaries. And this is what the book of Jonah shows us. Jonah is about a broken missionary. Jonah is about a guy who is given a mission and he runs from it. In the book of Jonah, we see the contrast between a hardened, uncaring, uh, uncompassionate guy and the loving, merciful, compassionate, caring heart of God. There's this great contrast between a guy who runs away from mission and the relentless pursuit of God after this man and to be on mission in the world. If anything, the book of Jonah shows that God is relentlessly on mission. He is pursuing sinners to save them, even broken servants of his who would much rather run to other locations than follow as God is called. And so Jonah holds up a mirror to our own hearts and shows us we're broken, we run, we, we are not faithful, and yet God still pursues. And so I want us to spend the next several weeks reflecting on this book, because it's very interesting also, this is only this short book, four chapters. It's a really well-crafted short story, but it is one of the most theologically and missiological, that's a big word, it just kind of means mission. Uh, it is the most sophisticated books in the Bible, the, the complexity of the theology in it, and, and just the, the beautiful insight into the way God interacts with the world and the way mission takes place in the world. It's just rich and full, and even in the, the short weeks that we have, we're not going to be able to unpack everything that is here. But I want us to spend some time reflecting on our own hearts and, and having God's word held up to us, because 
how often do we shrink back from mission and we don't even necessarily take time to stop and ask why? What keeps us from being faithful? What keeps us from following God as he has called us? And so we want God to open our eyes and challenge us and to give us hope. Because above all, the the book of Jonah gives hope to broken and failed missionaries like you and me. And so here's the main point for our talk this morning. We run, God pursues. We run, God pursues. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, will you please turn to the book of Jonah? It is between the books of Obadiah and Nahum, if that's helpful. (laughs) If not, table of contents. (laughs) Yes, Jonah is right in that kind of no man's land of the Bible where you don't really know where anything is. Uh, so we're going we're to look at the first chapter in particular this morning. So I want to first start by reading the first two verses here that introduce us to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So we're introduced to Jonah, and we're introduced to the city of Nineveh. So quick background, who is Jonah. So we actually first are introduced to Jonah in 2 Kings 14, and we learn that Jonah was a prophet serving during the the reign of King Jeroboam II. So quick history of Israel. In 930, Israel splits, divides. Before that, it had been one kingdom, one king, but then in 930, it splits into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeroboam II was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of of Israel. And Jonah served as a prophet during that time. And if you are familiar with the history of the northern kingdom, every single king, it says this, did what was wicked in the Lord's eyes. Like Israel had a track record, 100% wicked kings. But what's interesting, during the time of Jonah, rather than sending invaders to judge Israel for its wickedness, God actually blesses Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. Their borders expand. They have military and political success. And so Jonah is a prophet of expansion. Jonah was prophesying and speaking the word of the Lord during a time when Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was experiencing some good times. So if you're a prophet, you want that gig. Like you want to be prophesying when things are going well. You don't want to be Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesying doom and gloom, man, Jonah had it good. Who is Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So if there was one enemy that the northern kingdom of Israel feared the most, it was Assyria. There were constant threats of Assyria coming to attack Israel. And we know that in 722, they eventually do come and overthrow the northern kingdom and pull everybody into exile. But it's not just that Assyria was a political enemy and a rising power that threatened Israel. Assyria was the worst of the worst. You did not want to be attacked by Assyria. They made ISIS look like Boy Scouts. I know there are, there are some young kids in here, so I want to be careful with some of my language, but just to give you an idea of the things that they would do. So when they would conquer an enemy, and if there were surviving soldiers, what they would often do is they would grab a soldier, remove his legs and one of his arms, and shake his hand, mocking him while he died. They would often impale survivors and make family members carry them through the streets to show this is what happens when you cross Assyria. 
terrible, wicked, vicious, brutal, the worst of the worst in the ancient world. And God says, hey, Jonah, go preach to them. Go take my word to them. I I see they're evil, and I want you to call them to repent. And here's what Jonah does. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down to it. Go down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here's what Jonah does. God says, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah runs the opposite direction, 1,500 miles in the opposite direction. And if you know how travel worked in the ancient world, you didn't get on a plane to go 1,500 miles. You walked or you rode a horse or a donkey. And he was going to Tarshish because Tarshish was like the edge of the known world at the time. Like past Tarshish, you were kind of like, I don't know if it's civilized out there. So this is as far away as I can get. And so he gets up and he runs. And, and there's some kind of humorous irony here saying he's running from the presence of the Lord. But we know you can't run from the presence of the Lord. It covers the entire world. But here's what this means. Literally in the Hebrew, the word presence there is the word face. Running from the face of the Lord, meaning he was running from close proximity to the Lord. He didn't want to look God in the eye. You know when you you sin against someone, you've done something wrong to someone, you've betrayed someone, you don't want to look them in the eye anymore? This is the heart that Jonah had. He was running from God. I don't want to be in God's presence. I want to be in proximity because I know what I'm doing is wrong. And so he runs. And why does he run? Well, here's what's interesting about why Jonah runs. Because we would maybe assume that he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and get killed. Because he knows the Assyrians are terrible. But what we learn actually later in the book, and we're going to get into this in a couple weeks, Jonah runs because he knows God is going to be merciful to them. I know you're a God of mercy. I know you're going to save them. And I don't want you to. You see, in Jonah's mind, Assyria was the enemy. God, you rain fire down on them. I don't want you to save them. I want you to rain fire down on them. I don't like this mission. I don't like this call. I don't like what you're going to have me do because it rubs against what I want and what I desire. And so Jonah runs because he doesn't like what God's about to do. He doesn't like what God's up to. And so here's a question for all of us that we need to come to grips with. First is, where are we running from God? Like, where are we running from something that God is calling us into or calling us away from? There are many areas of our life where we could be walking faithfully with the Lord. And we see Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God. He was a servant of God. All all the other data that we know about Jonah is that he was a faithful guy. But he runs from God in this. And it, it, it just shows and simplifies so easy for us that rebellion against God, sin against God, is any time we decide, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. And we don't get the luxury of stacking all of our good against this one thing. Well, I'm faithful in all these other things, and so it kind of cancels out this one thing. No. Lordship is either entire or it's nothing. And so Jonah, even though he is a man of God, is running from God. And so I ask you, I ask myself, where are we running from God? Where is that area that the Lord is pressing on where we're saying no? Perhaps in your marriage, 
there is an area where God is calling you to a greater godliness or a greater service or a, a greater engagement with your spouse and you're saying no. Or maybe in your parenting, God is calling you to parent in a particular way and you're saying no. Perhaps in the way that you spend your money, God is calling you to faithfulness and you're saying no. Perhaps there's a relationship that you want to be a part of and God is saying no. Perhaps it is being on mission, making disciples, loving and serving other people and you're running from God. And here's the other piece of this. When Jonah runs, what's waiting for him? A ship. There's a ship just waiting for him. Hey, look, this must be right because there's a ship waiting for me to go. This is so easy. Let me get on the ship and run. And how many of us justify running from God because when we do it, the circumstances sort of just align? Like we think, if I wasn't supposed to do this, it would be hard and difficult. But, but look, everything just sort of seems to be aligning. Or we play this game. I have peace about it. Ever play that game? <laughs> you know, if you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 3 when, when Satan is tempting Adam and Eve and he's saying, oh, you won't die. You, you, you won't die. You, you're going you're gonna to have the knowledge of good and evil. You know what Satan was doing? Giving them peace. How often do we assume that it's okay because a ship is waiting for us and we have peace about it? Guess what? If you run from God, there's always going to be a ship waiting. There's always going to be an opportunity. You better believe that Satan is going to want you to run and he's going to set it up so that you can flee. But here's a deeper question for us. Why do we run? Well, what's driving us from, to, to, to run from God? Because what we see with Jonah is that so often our running from God has to do with whether or not we're cool with God's agenda whether or not we believe God is good. We run from God so often because it's what I want is different than what God is calling me to. And so we begin to doubt God. We begin to question his character. We begin to question his will. We begin to question whether or not what he has for us is good. And so we justify running from God. In what ways are you justifying running from God? How have you constructed in your mind that this is an okay thing because you know better than God? Are you aware of the ways that you're challenging God and, and questioning and saying, God, I don't believe that you're good. God, I don't believe that what you're up to here is for my good or for the good of others, and so I don't like it. Because in those places is the places you're going to be tempted to say no. And so Jonah runs because he does not like what God is up to. And so he gets on the ship and he goes. But this is what we read in verses four through six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may perish. Oh, so much going on in this little episode right here. First, what we see here is God let Jonah get on the ship, but he isn't letting him get comfortable. 
And in, that's many, in many ways, that is what you're going to experience running from God, is he may let you get on that ship, but he's not going to let the ride be comfortable, especially if you belong to him. There's this great imagery of God hurling storms. So the, the picture, what we're supposed to see is God standing there just going, whoom, whoom. I mean, literally, it's God throwing storms at this ship. And then there's this humorous contrast. Everybody on the boat is hurling luggage off. And so you have God in his greatness throwing storms, these guys throwing boxes. And so there's this funny little contrast to show how great God is and how little we are. But here is God hurling storms at this ship Jonah is on. And you can almost hear God say, Jonah, where are you going? Jonah, what are you doing? He's getting Jonah's attention. Here's both the seriousness of this passage and also the hope that's held out for us. On the one hand, running from God, when we belong to God, we are his. You are his son or daughter. God is going to upset your world. He is going to throw storms. When you are running, when you are in rebellion, when you are stiff-arming what he is calling you into, when you are in sin, you can expect that he is going to make the ride uncomfortable. But here's the hope for you, and I want you to hear me on this. Those storms are not retribution, they're restitution. You know the difference. Retribution is punishment. Restitution is about restoring relationship and bringing you back. It's not retribution, because you know where your retribution went? On the cross. And if you believe the storm is retribution in your life, here's what you're saying. Jesus didn't take it all. There's still punishment left for me. But if it's restitution, it's God's discipline saying, come back to me. Now, I'm not saying that every storm you're facing in life is because you're in rebellion. Some storms just happen because we live in a fallen world. Some storms, God has up to other things going on. So I'm not, don't try to say that everything that goes wrong in your life is because of sin. But I guarantee you that there is something in your life, if there is rebellion in your heart ongoing, God is trying to stir the waters. He is hurling storms. He's trying to get your attention because he's coming after you. He's pursuing you. Oh, it's scary. If God just lets you go, that's scary. If God just lets you go, that means you don't belong to him. But he pursues and he comes after Jonah. He upsets his world. And here's what we also see. We see Jonah in a ship fast asleep. And so if you you take sort of verses one through six, there's a movement of Jonah down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. Eventually, he's going to go down into the sea. And so we're supposed to just see Jonah is just sinking further and further and further as he moves away from God. And so he is in this ship, fast asleep. Now, that word fast there is the same word that you will find in Genesis when it talks about God putting Adam to sleep to take out a rib. Jonah is like in this state of like almost, uh, he's under anesthesia. This is a deep sleep. And what's causing it? Well, for some of you, maybe this kind of conjures up thoughts of Jesus sleeping in a boat. But these are vastly different sleeps. Jesus, his sleep was rest. His sleep was, I'm trusting in God's goodness and his providential care. Jonah is the sleep of escape. Jonah is the sleep of depression brought on by sin. 
Jonah is the sleep of, I don't care about anything anymore. I'm completely checking out. Jonah's sleep is the sleep of when sin overtakes you and your heart is hardened and you don't care anymore. He is detached. He's done. He doesn't care about what's happening to these sailors. Not not to mind the fact that he's the cause of it, but Jonah doesn't care. And here's what's scary for us, church, is that sometimes when we are running and we get caught in our sin, this is what happens to our hearts. This is one of the reasons we don't live on mission, is because sin creates this preoccupation with our own stuff, and it causes us to detach. It causes us to detach from the concerns and cares of other people. And so we will be fast asleep, we will be removed from the world, we'll emotionally detach from people and be able to sleep while chaos is going around, people are in trouble and drowning, people need Christ, people need to be loved, and we're just kind of back on whatever. This is where sin brings us, church. This is what happens when we allow sin to grab hold of our hearts and we say no to God. Rebellion has consequences. You can't rebel from God and internally be okay. You can't be spiritually and emotionally healthy. So Jonah is asleep. But in contrast to Jonah, you see these mariners, you see these, these sailors fighting back against the storm. And the way that they're doing that is, is how they know. This is their theological framework. Let's cry out to a God. So you have a God, you cry out to him. Who's your God? Okay, you cry out to him. Okay, your God. Okay, so let's just get all our bases covered here because we know some God is doing this. And so they're, they're engaging their theology the best they know how. And then they recognize, hey, where's that, where's that one guy? And so they run down and find him sleeping, and they rebuke him and say, hey, you cry out to your God. And there's this great irony. This non-believing pagan is exercising more faith than Jonah, the believer. This is an incredible rebuke. This is what I mean by sort of a, a missiological sophistication and theological sophistication. Because here's what this passage shows us, church. That sometimes the world, sometimes people who don't believe, exercise more faith. Sometimes they rebuke us in our indifference. Sometimes they show more care and concern for the world than we do. Sometimes the line of who is being faithful and who is not is so blurred. The man of God, the Christian in this story, is the most rebellious one. And the non-believer is trying the best they can. Now, we don't stretch this too far, but be, let the weight of this hit us for a second. Because church, it should not be that the world cares about the brokenness more than we do. It should not be that the world cares about the brokenness of racism and sexism and exploitation and violence more than we do. It should not be that the world cares more about sort of economic depravity and the have and the have-nots more than we do. Wherever there is brokenness in this world, the church, the people of God should be caring the most. Why is that? Because our God cares Our God cares deeply about the brokenness, both the spiritual and the physical. Let's not be functional Gnostics. So so that that term is sort of like, what? what? (laughs) So Gnosticism, very simply put, is it was this ancient belief that only spiritual things matter and the physical world doesn't matter. 
And so it was all about just, hey, I'm going to someday reach this, this spiritual plane of existence, and who cares what goes on here? And how many of us function that way? How many of us think about mission that way? All that matters is that someone's soul goes to heaven. Church, yes, we care deeply about people's souls. We want them to, to experience Christ. We want people to be redeemed. But, but hear me on this for a second. Sorry, this isn't in my notes. This is a little bit of extra. Church, that belief typically comes from the idea that God is just going to burn this all and it doesn't matter. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is going to restore his creation. He's going to renew his creation. He cares deeply about this physical world. And so we need to care deeply as well. We need to have this heart that, yes, I care about the brokenness because God does. I care deeply about the brokenness and the the pain in this world because the kingdom of God is here to push back that darkness. Now, this means we rely on God. God restores. We don't. God is going to change and transform. But as his people, we show the same heart and care and concern. And so church, let us not allow sin to numb us to the pain around us. Let's not allow sin to create this disconnect from the suffering around us. Let's care about people. Yes, we want to preach the gospel and make disciples. But we do that caring about the whole person. We care about our city. We care about our world. And so there's this great contrast between the sailors and Jonah. And so the sailors are trying their best to figure out what is wrong. And they they pull Jonah in. And eventually they come up with a new idea. Let's cast some lots. So here's what we read in 7 through 10. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here's this really cool moment. See, the sailors are experiencing the storm and they're crying out to their God and they sort of have a framework for what's happening. Then Jonah, as the lot falls to Jonah and say, hey, it's Jonah's fault. And they're like, well, tell us who you are and why this is happening to us. Jonah reveals to them the one true God. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I follow the Lord. I follow Yahweh who made the land and the sea. And so they're going, wait, you follow the most powerful God? Great. And so there's this moment of recognition. But there's also this incredible moment where the Lord is declared to be the God of all people. There isn't a God for this person, a God for this person, a God for that person. No, one God for all people. And so the Lord is revealed to these people. And here is what is in that. God is pursuing them too. God is getting their attention too. He's not just getting the attention of the rebellious religious guy. He's getting the attention of the irreligious pagan as well. He's pursuing all peoples. And so they decide to do something about this. They think, okay, what is it? So Jonah, you're, you're the, the fault, you're the problem. What are we going to do with this? And here's what Jonah tells them. 
sorry, I'll actually let me back up and start in verse 11 there. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So Jonah says, you got to throw me into the sea. And the guys are like, I don't know if we want to do this, because if we kill this guy, his God might rain vengeance upon us. And so they try to row faster and harder to get to the, to the shore. But the, the storm just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And so they realize we have no other choice. And so as they're throwing Jonah in, they're saying, Lord, don't hold this man's life against us. And so there's a lot of nobility here to the very end. And so they pick up and they throw Jonah into the sea and immediately the sea calms. It's kind of one of those like funny moments. Jonah's body goes in, boom, calm. And in this act, we see something very powerful and very profound. You see, why didn't Jonah just get up and jump in? Why, 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 why did he have to be thrown in? Because there's a picture here for us. There's a principle being applied here that of substitution. Jonah is being cast into the sea in order to save everybody on board. One gives up his life for everybody else. So Jonah is guilty. Everybody else on board is guilty as well for different things. Everybody on board has sinned against God. Jonah goes in as the substitute, as the the guilty one representing everybody else. And so there is this picture in play of the one saving the many, the one being punished for the many. And this is why Jesus draws a straight line in Matthew 12 from himself to Jonah. Jesus himself says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so Jonah goes into the water of judgment and he's swallowed by this fish, which we'll see next week represents a grave. Jesus says, what happened to Jonah is representative of what's going to happen to me. Jonah was pointing to something better. There was a better substitution. And so here is what we see in Jonah being cast into the water. We see another evidence of God pursuing. Because God is making a way for people to be saved. God is making a way for salvation to come to sinners. Jonah pictures for us the relentless pursuit of God in Jesus Christ. And and here's the good news for us. See, Jonah's a terrible substitute. Jonah Jonah was cast into the water, and yet he saved the people on board. But compared to Christ, he's a terrible substitute. Because consider, Jonah ran from the mission of God. Jesus ran to the mission of God. Jonah was guilty. Jesus was innocent, but became sin for us. Jonah had checked out emotionally and spiritually. He was done. He had no compassion. Jesus entered into our brokenness. He entered into our sin and our suffering, and he loved us. He was present. He wept. He was emotionally engaged. He didn't run. He didn't check out. He came, and he came near. 
Jonah's substitution saved a ship full of dudes. Jesus' substitution saves the world. In Jesus Christ, understand, God is relentlessly pursuing you. He is coming after you. He is loving you. He is showing that your sin, your rebellion, you're saying no, your self-pity, you're emotionally shutting off, you're chasing after false gods. Whatever the, the case may be, God still pursues. God still comes after you. God still makes a way for you to be saved. God is a God who pursues. So for those of you that call on the name of Christ, that would belong to Jesus, you're following Jesus, but yet you're in this place of rebellion. You're in this place of saying no to God, and it is affecting the way that you're called to live on mission. And so you look at your life and go, I am a broken, hot mess of a missionary, and I can point to the fact it's because of this sin and this sin and this sin. Hey, the hope for you is that God is pursuing you. Jesus Christ is still coming after you. He loves you. He's upsetting your world to restore you and bring you back to him. He went into the water of judgment so you didn't have to. He loves you. Turn from your sin. Understand that whatever God is up to that you may not like and you may wrestle with and have questions about, understand that God is up to something beautiful. He's up to something something great and you may not understand why. But trusting in his goodness, trusting in his character, trusting in the power of his spirit. So for you who call on the name of the Lord, I want to encourage you. God is coming after you in love and he is relentless. For those of you here this morning that that don't profess faith in Christ, the, the, the people in the story you would most relate to would be the sailors in some ways. And you say, well, I don't really follow a God. Yes, but you follow something. You've, you've given ultimate value to something, and that is functionally your God. Whether it is building an identity for yourself, or wealth and success, or a particular relationship, whatever it may be, you've attached something and given it ultimate value that gives your life meaning and purpose. Understand this as well. God is pursuing you. God is coming after you. Through Jesus Christ, God is on mission to save you, He's calling you to turn from your sin and turn to him. And look, I don't know what storms you're facing. I don't know what issues you're facing, but but recognize this. God uses whatever pain, whatever struggle. He he, he uses the the broken things of this world to get your attention. And, And he's consistently asking you to reflect on this question. What hope do you have? Well, what's gonna fix the problem? What's gonna fix both what's inside you and what's out there? So God holds himself out for you in the midst of that. He's, he's working to get your attention to show you, hey, I'm coming after you. I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to restore you and give you new life, new purpose, new identity. And so no matter where you are this morning, understand God is a pursuing God. In church, when we see the relentless love of God that comes after us, even when we are rebellious and we run and we try to hide, oh, may that free us May that transform us. May that show us that God is caught up in something much bigger and greater than we could ever construct for ourselves. That true life is found in him. And so when God, when we run, God pursues. And let us respond in faith and repentance and turn back to him and experience the life and the joy that he has for us. Amen.